Here's to Lucy doing announcements every week, because that was, that was fantastic. Yeah, that's right, that's the right response. I'm not supposed to tell you what the right response is. Apparently that's offensive to Brits, but do it. <laughs> Applaud for the woman, my goodness. Okay, anyway. Um, yeah, I'm Chris. You might know me as the lanky American that's married to the incredible and kind and gifted and wonderful families pastor, or the lanky American who chases small children around the church on Sundays as they scream like dinosaurs. Either way, that's me. Um, I'm gonna turn my Bible right side up because that helps. Um, we're talking about Daniel. If, if you're here, and you're new to the series, um, it's been a great series. Toby started us off and talked about how God is our judge, that we live to an audience of one. It's a great preach. Jim talked about how God is speaking to us today and wants to speak to us and to others and draw us into his story. It's a great preach. Sarah talked about how we are living for God in the ashes of empire. Also a great preach, slightly conv more convicting personally, still dealing with that one, thankfully, but like, I, but like, Holy Spirit, I, but like, oh, okay, it's fine. Um, all of them are amazing, amazing, incredible sermons. I would encourage you guys to go back. Um, to, to categorize what today is going to be, it's going to be more of the same of last week. And, and the reason I say that is because there's something about empire to be grappled with in this passage, in this text, that makes it make sense. And it's important for us because we live in a time of incredible power, privilege, and comfort and we can be an empire unto ourselves and not even realize it. So it's, it's a good thing to take stock of as we talk. Um, before I bring up Rebecca to read, we're, we're reading through Daniel about how four friends living in exile reckoned with what it meant to worship in an empire that did not want them to succeed, did not care about their God, did not care about their religion. Uh, it's a story of being carried away, taken captive, reckoning with a horrific emperor who is constantly threatening death and execution. Um, and today the story pivots to the three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You may be familiar with this story. I want to encourage you as Rebecca reads it, don't be. It's really easy to make this very bizarre, very weird, very impossible story feel very familiar, feel like a fairy tale or a nice you know, example of God's favor and not reckon with the pain and the terror and the very real threat that people live in still today. Because if we read this passage and think, oh, isn't that nice? God does nice things. We've missed the entire context that these three friends went through. And it's a context that's worth remembering because it helps us to understand who our God is in a world of evil and powerful threats. So with that in mind, I'm just gonna invite you to keep that in the back of your head. Let it be weird. That's the tagline. As you hear the story, if you're like, that's weird, let it be weird. Don't try to ration it out in your head. So I'm going to bring up Rebecca to read Daniel 3, 1 through 30. There we go. Daniel 3, verses 1 to 30. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. 
Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, light, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty." They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't these three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the burning furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Thanks, Rebecca. That was awesome. Um, such an American thing to say. Whatever. Moving on. Uh, this is such a bizarre story. I, I, I heard this story as a, as a child in Sunday school, and it was like, God's going to give you faith for your furnaces. I mean, I hope I don't have to go to, do I have to, go to a furnace. There's a furnace. As a child, that was a weird image. Like, you're going to have faith. You're not going to get burned alive. I'm like, but is that an option? Is that a live option? Is that real? And, and I say that to say, for some it is. Many around the world make a decision to live for Jesus at threat to their lives. Uh, some of you from Weekend Away know this, but uh, I, was, I was serving the underground church in a country I won't name uh, in the interest of security for a friend. Uh, but while I was there, a friend of mine was taken by the secret, secret police. He was arrested and he was taken away in broad daylight away from his family because they suspected him of supporting Christians because I was with him. I stood there while his wife sobbed uncontrollably. My friend tried to comfort her while we waited and said, God, is he going to be okay? Well, we prayed. We said, Lord, have mercy. And thank God he was spared. But that, to me, was a very visceral and very real reminder that what I take for granted, many don't. That worship is a choice that comes with a great cost and often requires great risk and great trust and great faith. Now, we're not in Babylon in helpful or comforting circumstances. This is not, in the middle of this moment, the story of Israel living its best life. You see, the Babylonian exile happened because Israel was deeply unfaithful, because their worship became so impure. Uh, there's a, several books that deal with this issue, but there's a lot of insight in Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel. And each of these books talk about Israel's corruption. Uh, Sarah did an amazing job talking about this last week, but, but really what happened is as the people of God came into the promised land, they began to take on pagan worship practices to bring them into their worship of God, and slowly over time, they became more and more corrupted by what they did and by how they worshiped. As they did, the prophets began to speak to them and say, what are you doing Stop this. And this was not a small matter. This was not a matter of maybe small compromise or, or worship that was maybe just slightly off in the heart. This was corruption to the highest degree. In, in Jeremiah 7, the prophet says this, speaking for God, go to the entrance of the Lord's temple and give this message to the people. Oh, Judah, listen to this message from the Lord. Listen to it, all of you who worship here. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Even now, if you quit your evil ways, I will let you stay in your own land. But don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. They chant, the Lord's temple is here. The Lord's temple is here. But I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. 
Only if you stop exploiting foreigners, orphans, and widows. Only if you stop your murdering. Only if you stop harming yourselves by worshiping idols. Then I will let you stay in this land that I gave to your ancestors to keep forever. Don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. Do you really think that you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incense to Baal and all those other new gods of yours, and then come here and stand before me in my temple and say, we are safe, only to go right back to all those evils again? Don't you yourselves admit that this temple which bears my name has become a den of thieves? Surely I see all the evil going on there. I, the Lord, have spoken." And then later in the chapter, the people of Judah have sinned before my very eyes, says the Lord. They have set up their abominable idols right in the temple that bears my name, defiling it. They have built pagan shrines at Topheth, the dark garbage dump in the valley of Ben-Himmon, and there they burn their sons and daughters in the fire. I have never commanded such a horrible deed and never even crossed my mind to command such a thing. This isn't slight compromise or mild corruption. This is a land of horror. And it's so much more corrupt because it's not as if it's a nation that claimed to have no God or no law or no rule. These are people who are pointing to the temple where God's very power and presence has come to earth and saying, that's our God and still we will commit pagan sacrifice and child sacrifice on altars of burning fire. They will do all the evil and injustice and every time you try to question us, we'll say, don't worry, we have the temple. We have the power of God. Who's going to do anything to us? He's defeated all our enemies in battle. He's come through with all these judges and these kings. What do we have to worry about? We have the temple. And even in that moment, God is saying, please just change your heart and your ways and come back to me. Get rid of these idols. Get rid of these injustices. Live for me in worship the way I've called you to. My heart is not that you would be destroyed. My heart is that you would be spared. You see, worshiping God was not a matter of just the right sacrifice, but it was living life to God in all its facets in a way that honored his heart, his justice, his peace, his generosity, his blessing. Israel was called to be a blessing to every nation, to show them who God was and his desire to bring justice to the earth. And instead, they took on all the worst parts of every nation and still claimed to be some privileged people who could uniquely claim to be chosen by God. Ezekiel points out a complex nuance to this when he talks about the sin that surrounded them that they had taken on. He's talking about Sodom, and he says that the sin of that city was that it was arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned are not things I usually think of when I think of the most evil in the world. That's not the story of Sodom that was told to me, and yet... Worship to God cannot be arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. God brings his power to earth. He gives us the privilege of his presence and says, do not become people focused on power and privilege. Become people focused on me and my desire to give that power and privilege away. Israel got to this point point for all too common reasons, for really familiar reasons. It's not surprising when anyone chooses security or power. We live in a terrifying world. If your world is not terrifying, it's most likely because you are given immense comfort and privilege that you gained from your family or where you were born. But for so many around the earth, the threat of death and power, of despots and wars is a very real and daily reality. And in that place, to seek security to seek protection, to seek power is not surprising. 
in a moment of conflict, in a moment of war, Israel kept going, okay, maybe just a little more comfort. Maybe God's not enough. Maybe he won't come through. Maybe this idol too. Maybe this worship. I mean, we want to worship God, but, but maybe we, I mean, this is a people who lived here before us. Maybe they know something. I mean, maybe, maybe there's a pagan God here. I mean, we have to worship him too. We don't want to make them mad. And they made compromise after compromise. It, it didn't start off as rampant injustice, but that's where it led. God called them to a pure worship. And for a number of very relatable reasons, they became compromised in their worship, and it became something that he could not let continue. He was clear that he could not let Israel continue to present to the world that he was endorsing the evil they were committing. That was the issue. The issue was, you cannot keep saying that I am behind all this. I called you to bless the nations and the poor and the vulnerable and the needy. You're saying this is me. This is not me. This never entered my mind. What are you doing? And so Israel is in Babylon because he finally said, I, I won't warn you again. Nebuchadnezzar came and ravaged the city and destroyed the temple and took away the holy artifacts. And when he did it, the people of God feel abandoned, disoriented, and disconnected. Where once they could point to God's power and say, we have nothing to fear, suddenly there's no temple there's no glory cloud, there's no presence, there's no priest, there's no, the ark is not there, the kings are not there. Suddenly, they're just living under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, who, if you didn't catch it from that passage, is a maniac. <laughs> I am not trying to be funny when I say that. It's funny, but he is. And maniac rule is a very common thing throughout the course of history. Maniacs gain power because they're good at gaining power. They're good at building up privilege, and then they force that power and privilege on the weak and the hurting. And if you compromise and join them, then you leave those weak and vulnerable people in their wake. Where once Israel knew God's power and presence, where once they were privileged to be his people, now they have no power, no privilege, no temple, no promised land. They just get to live in fear of a maniac. Still, in that unpredictable place, Daniel and his friends present something different. Because in all these prophetic pictures where God is saying, please stop, he's also saying, even if you don't, I'm going to bring you home. Even if you fail, I'm going to rescue you. Even if you continue to be evil, I will bring good. It's coming and it will not fail. Sarah talked about this last week. A nation that will never fail to endure, my good kingdom will come. It's on its way. Even if you are not enough, I am. And in Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Amendigo, we see the beginning of that restoration. We see the small glimmer of God's power and heart for his people. They're faithful in their worship, and he gives them his favor. You see, where Israel was overfed and unconcerned, they choose not to be overfed. They choose to worship. Where Israel was arrogant, they point to God and say, this isn't us. We're not gaining these new positions on our own, but God is speaking through us. And so again, we see this heart of restoration that God is saying, it's not just that these four are especially good people. It's that I am a very good God. And so what we see, interestingly, is that they're starting to get power and privilege again. Just like Israel was favored before, suddenly, oh, promotions and, and titles, and, and oh, we, we can make a real difference. Hey, look at all this influence we have in Babylon. There's all these nations here. We can, we can change the world. We're speaking to this powerful emperor. We can, we can do this. 
And along the way, worship brings promotion. Worship brings favor. Worship brings back power. And worship brings back privilege. Until suddenly it doesn't. Until suddenly we hear a story of worship that turns the table and the tide. Until suddenly Nebuchadnezzar says, worship what I have established or die. Now, to be honest, the threat here is incredibly ironic because Israel went to Babylon because it burned its children in the fire. And now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have a choice. Either worship God with pure worship and die the death that their nation brought on everyone else, pay the price for their parents' and grandparents' sins, take on another painful act of judgment, or worship Nebuchadnezzar and give up on worship and start the cycle all over again. Because make no mistake, had these three who had power and privilege said yes to bow, the cycle begins again. Worship is compromised. Injustice persists. Because at that point, you begin to spoil what God has made beautiful. I mean, this is a massive risk. It's impossible. It's depressing. If you're, watching, if you're watching a movie, this feels like that moment where poetic justice is coming for a nation that maybe hasn't been punished enough yet. But still, without full restoration, without a new king, without the empire being toppled, they're faithful, and they get sold out for it. Babylonians go to the king and say, wait till you hear what happened. They're saying no. They're not bowing. And Nebuchadnezzar's response, now who is that God who can rescue you from my power? This is, makes it very clear. This is not a choice between small compromise and no compromise. This is a choice between worshiping God or worshiping Nebuchadnezzar's gods. It is as clear as can be. And their response, I think it's very easy to hear in their response something modern and something hopeful, a little jazzy, like they were dancing, like, we're not going to bow to you, like a worship song. The fact that they say, we don't have to answer you. If God exists, he can rescue us, and he will. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. I think we often hear that last line as if it's an unimportant aside. But this is real talk, because faith is a risk, Every time we say yes to God in impossible circumstances, and this is an impossible circumstance, we're not talking about, hey, if you don't bow, you're going to get fired. We're talking about you're going to burn in fire if you do not bow. This is impossible. Let it be impossible. No matter what Nebuchadnezzar says, though, they're not going to bow. They won't worship. They won't start the cycle up again. They will stay in a place of pure worship to God and saying, look, we saw what happened when our parents and grandparents worshiped these idols and these altars, and we're not going back there. And even if we die, we say no. And at this moment, you might think, and here comes God, and the statue topples, and the king dies, and then the new Israel starts in Babylon, except they don't. They get thrown in the fire, which is a weird turn. Because up to this moment, they've been favored and helped, but now they're in the fire. And if you're reading along, again, not knowing what's happening, you're like, well, no, 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 they did the right thing. They didn't bow. They did, and yet they're still in the fire. And this is such a turning point in Scripture because it's a new way for God to confront evil. Because up to this point, he's confronted evil with kings and with judges and with warriors. And then suddenly he confronts evil by saying, I'm right there in the fire with the ones who refuse to bow to you. I'm in the middle of the furnace. My rescue's right there. I don't need to topple your statue. 
I don't need to be more powerful than your kingdom. You are not a threat to me. But I'm with those three. You want to know where I am? I'm right there. As a display of power, it's like nothing that's ever been seen before. Without trying to say, I'm bigger and badder and worse than you, Nebuchadnezzar, God's answer is, there I am in the fire. There I am with my faithful ones. The thing we have to remember as we go through this is they didn't do this on their own, before or after the fire. From the beginning of this story, it's clear, God is helping them. So I think it's easy to think, like, I don't know if I would go in the fire. I'll be honest, I don't know if I would. But praise God, he was there helping them. This is not a story of them being virtuous on their own. It's a story of God coming in and helping people who can't help themselves. This sounds a lot like Jesus. In Philippians 2, Paul writes this. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That at, every name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in Colossians 2, Paul says this, You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all, all our sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. In the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God enters into the furnace to save them. On the cross, Jesus endured the worst kind of furnace to conquer evil and to usher in the kingdom that will not fail. And that brings some really important implications for us today. Number one, we're not alone. Whatever you think about God, you are not alone. You're not abandoned to be faithful on your own. You're not abandoned to obey on your own. You're not abandoned to worship on your own. We think we can worship on your own, our own, but we can't. We need God's help. On our own, we're prone to all the same evil and vices and compromise and fear and security. But with God, all things are possible. Let it be impossible to worship. Don't lose that. We get to remember that it's always been impossible to believe in God. It's always been impossible to live a life faithful to him. It's always been impossible to overcome our worst vices. Romans 12 says we are to live as living sacrifices, to give every moment of our lives, our decisions, our actions to him. That's terrifying and impossible at times. There's so many moments where God might call you to trust him and you might think, That's not something I want to do right now. I would like this not to be a worship moment. Can this just be a normal life moment? Can I just be, yeah, right now, can I have friends? And this is my, I don't, this is embarrassing. I don't know if I want to talk about you right now. It's awkward and weird. Or, like my friend in a country under a rule that doesn't let him worship, the question is, do I stay with my family or do I worship God? Because he could have said, no, no, I'm not a Christian. I don't know who these people are. I'm a tour guy. They don't know. But he didn't. He acknowledged it. He said, yes, I worship Jesus. Now, he was spared, but he didn't know that when he went in. He still made that decision. But thankfully, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're not on our own. We don't have to live our life as living sacrifices on our own strength. We have Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit. We worship in spirit and in truth. See, we live in the now and the not yet of God's good kingdom. 
Because of Jesus, it's broken in. It happens. And we hear all these stories of miracles, of healings, of breakthrough. And yet, we look around and we still see evil kings and evil rule and empires and pain and injustice. And God asks us in that place, whether you feel like you're in my presence or you feel like you're in Babylon, will you still worship only me? And then says to us, but don't worry, you don't have to do that on your own. If you give me every part of your life and you trust me, I'll help you to do this. I'll give you my Holy Spirit to guide you, to empower you, to help you, to strengthen you. You're not on your own. I'm calling you to something impossible. God tells us, I'm not asking you to do something easy or comfortable with no risk. I'm making it so impossible to follow me and saying, but if you'll just say yes, I'll do all the heavy lifting. And we start to see the stories of God this way. We start to realize how many of them on our own strength we'd say no to. Walk on water? No. You know, face death? No. Tell an emperor that he's not the real king of the universe? No, thank you. But in God, we start to say yes and amen. Because we know what comes out of our mouths next is not our own words, but God's. That when we pray, it's not our own power, but his. And so instead of trying to gather here around the power of his presence and the privilege of this beautiful community, we say, why could I, I can't build that up. I can't be overfed on your spiritual presence. I can't be unconcerned with the world. Your good kingdom is going out and confronting evil. I have to be there because your spirit won't let me stay still. And then every person you meet is an act of worship because you say to God, how can I worship you in loving this person? You're not on your own. You don't have to go into Tesco on your own. You don't have to go into class on your own. You don't have to go work on your own. So this is where we're landing. You're not on your own. If you've been lied to, you're not on your own. And there are three things I think that the Spirit wants to do in light of this. As he calls us all to worship him with everything, I think he wants to confront four basic lies. And we're just going to do this and let the Spirit do his, do his beautiful thing. One is bitterness. Maybe you've trusted God in the past and it feels like he didn't come through. Maybe you tried to do this, and it felt like things failed. There was no rescue, no powerful breakthrough. I think God wants to minister deeply to hearts in that place and say, I'm, I'm not finished yet. My kingdom's just getting started. You may have not seen it, but there's still hope. My peace and my hope and my justice are still for you. Maybe you've got fear. Maybe you're saying, I don't know, that is a version of Christianity that I don't know if I'm ready for. What you're asking me to do, I don't know if I can. I, I am terrified. And I hear him saying, let me hold your hand as I help you. Some of you might be battling with the lie of shame. You feel like you're stuck, stuck in a cycle of security or compromise, worshiping idols of, of ambition or comfort or technology or influence or or career or safety, and you know it. I know it. And I hear God saying, whether it's the first time or the 50th time, come back to me. I'm kind and I'm merciful and I long to restore you and help you to live without compromise, to worship me with everything. And the last one, is just maybe you're de dealing with a lie of feeling alone. Maybe you feel like God doesn't want you. Maybe you feel like there's no way he would choose you. Maybe that you think there's, you have no business in the kingdom. And that's just a lie from the pit of hell because he made you and he knit you together and he says, you are precious to me. 
And there's no one I'd rather pour out my power and privilege on that you might give it away because there's so many who need to hear that same truth that I gave my life for you. So will you guys stand really quick? I'm just going to pray. If you're in that first one, if you're, if you're struggling with bitterness, um, I would just encourage everybody to come into a place with the Spirit. Like, do some honest business with the Spirit. However you want to do that. You want to close your eyes, you want to open them, you want to bow your head, you want to sit, you want to stand. If you need to sit back down or lay down or kneel, whatever you want to do, let the Spirit guide you. If you're bitter with God and you feel like you've got good reason to be bitter, there's an invitation right now, I believe, in the Spirit to be real about that with him and say, I trusted you, what happened? Because you'll never hear his heart saying to you, I'm not done yet, as long as you believe the lie that what happened is all that he's got. So if you're in that place of bitterness, I just want to pray for you now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would restore hearts of bitterness. Hearts that feel like you've shown all you've got. Hearts that feel like there's no more miracles, no more power, no more hope. Pray that you would restore in those places, that you would be tender. You don't put out the smallest ember. You don't, you don't say it as it goes. So I pray that you would reignite the fire of hope and faith that's in those bitter hearts that says, I want to trust you and I want to worship you. If you're dealing with fear, really powerful fear, um, if you're not dealing with fear, please pray with me right now because I believe this is the Spirit's doing and I don't, I would not even attempt to do this on my own. So if you can just nod and say, I feel comfortable praying against fear right now, and thank you, a couple of you are. We just say fear has to go in the name of Jesus. There's no fear in his perfect love. And we pray that those who have been intimidated, who've suffered nightmares or threats, who have felt like they can't trust God, that there would be radical freedom to walk in his love. And we just bless you to be free of fear in the name of Jesus. If you feel shame, if you're ashamed of the version of Christianity you inherited or the version of Christianity you lived or both, if you're ashamed of where you're at right now, I hear the Holy Spirit saying, look to Jesus, not to yourself. Because he longs to restore you and I just bless you to be free of shame and to know that his heart that you, is that you would be radically restored. And for the last one, if you're alone, <laughs> I just feel the joy of the Lord saying, you're not. You are not. So if you have a crazy call on your life that's impossible, praise the Lord, you're not alone. If you want to come home and be a part of the family of God, you're not alone. If you feel like you've got no business coming back, thank God his grace and his mercy that Jesus went and took on the cross and took on the worst possible furnace that you could come back home. So I bless you with that, in Jesus' name.